0: Hi, welcome to the Palliators Podcast. I'm your host, board certified and fellowship trained hospice and palliative medicine physician, Dr. Tara Katine. This podcast is for healthcare professionals who want to become more comfortable and more confident in caring for their chronically ill and terminally ill patients. With the help of the physicians who trained with me, We hope to provide education and promote palliative care one podcast at a time. We're so glad to have you with us. Hey, everybody. A long time ago, I used to give an annual talk to second-year medical students about the appropriateness of hospice care, and every now and then I would give a version of this presentation to a variety of audiences. I've been considering talking about it on the podcast and only recently decided that I should go for it. I titled this one, Everyone Has a Story, based on a conversation I had with one of my former supervisors. And it's mostly true. Everyone does have a story. Some have more than one. This time, I'm going to tell you one of mine. You know, hospice isn't glamorous or sexy. In fact, when I'm out and about or meeting new people and they ask me what I do... The change in the atmosphere is palpable when I tell them. They'll say, that's depressing. Or they'll say, it takes a special person to be able to do that kind of work. Really, it only takes people who are willing to do that kind of work. But I find that hospice is really more uplifting than what others might think. I have found so much reward in helping people feel as good as they can feel, helping them live as fully as they can, helping them to find peace in such a hard time in their lives, and in helping families come together and face this process in the most meaningful way possible. There's great personal reward in all of this. I didn't always feel this way. I didn't go into medicine to do hospice work. No. I wanted to go into medicine to help people get well or find a cure for something. I didn't say, oh, I want to help people be comfortable and live as fully as possible while they're dying. So how did I go from wanting to cure people to helping people as they're dying? To explain that, I have to share my story. I want to start by describing a picture that sits on my desk. You can see it on the blog page at the Palliators website. But for now, let me describe it. When people see this picture, they notice there are three individuals, two women and a man. The picture's fairly old now, but most people comment on how similar the two women look in that picture. With good reason. This is a picture of me with my mother and father. And I happen to look quite a bit like my mom. If you look really closely at the picture, you can see Christmas decorations and holiday attire. So it's obvious this is some sort of holiday celebration. When I look at this picture, I see the last Christmas I got to spend with my mother before she died. It's one of the few good times she had after being diagnosed with cancer. So when I look at this picture and see our faces, I see the reason why I work in hospice and palliative care. Yet no one in this picture received hospice, nor any of its benefits. So to explain how I ended up wanting to work in hospice and palliative care based on our experience, I need to tell you our story. We are from the southeastern part of the United States, where college football is a big deal. My mother and father had traveled to an away football game near New Orleans one weekend in October. It was pretty early in my medical training. And while they were walking around, she became short of breath very easily. She had to stop and sit every few yards, making it hard to shop in the French Quarter or to participate in the careless New Orleans revelry. She got a chest X-ray while down there, and it showed a right hilar lung mass. So they went back home to have a workup done that revealed that she had small cell lung cancer. And luckily, it hadn't metastasized. She underwent further testing and had a CT of the head, abdomen, and pelvis, She had a bone scan, a bone marrow biopsy, and a lot of blood work, as well as a cardiac evaluation. All this was done to determine if she would be a good candidate for therapy and which therapy she would receive. She passed all of her tests, and she was started on the standard chemotherapy at the time. As you might expect, she developed nausea and vomiting with every round of chemo. She started to lose her hair, and unfortunately, she also developed a peripheral neuropathy. I remember going home one weekend shortly after she had chemo, and I watched her experience the intractable vomiting. Oh my gosh, what a horrible, helpless feeling to witness my mother going through this, and to witness my father, the king of the castle, feeling so helpless because he was unable to make it better for her. At Thanksgiving that year, We got to share in the lovely project of shaving the mangy remnants of hair from her scalp so that her wig could attach adequately. Those things were really hard for all of us. Hard for my dad and me, who didn't even have cancer. I can't even imagine how much harder it must have been for my mom. Those things were pretty awful. But she really didn't want to talk about it. This was A top secret experience for our family. No one was allowed to know that she had cancer, was undergoing treatment, or was experiencing side effects of the treatment. She didn't want people to pity her, and she didn't want people to think that they could catch cancer from her. She was worried what other people would think, and she didn't want them to treat her differently. Thankfully, by spring, she was thought to be in remission. Unfortunately, by Easter, she was found to have metastatic lesions in both cerebral hemispheres, cerebellum, and brainstem. So she started radiation therapy. But she kept getting worse. It got to the point where she could no longer manage the steps to go to bed. She had trouble getting in and out of the car to go to the radiation treatments, since she was getting worse, her oncologist suggested that she be admitted to the hospital. They could do a work up there. They could consult a neurologist. And the radiation center was on the hospital grounds. So we could find out what was going on, begin new treatment in the hospital, and it would be a lot easier to treat her there. It made perfect sense. Yet, she didn't want to be in the hospital. She preferred to be in her own home. But she was told that this was the right way to move forward so that she could get better. She allowed herself to be admitted to the hospital, and of course, when you go to the hospital, you have to justify, justify the hospitalization, right? So they ordered a bunch of lab work. A neurologist was consulted, and one of the main things they wanted was an MRI. Now, I should tell you, that my mother did not want to have an MRI. She was a little bit afraid of it. For those of you who have not been around an MRI, let me tell you a little bit about them. You're not allowed to wear any of your jewelry or bring your personal items in with you to avoid problems with the magnet. The MRI machine is kind of like a long metal tube, and the person goes inside this big tube and must lie completely still for a prolonged period of time. All the while, it sounds like there's someone hammering all over it. My mother was a little claustrophobic. She hated loud noises, and she didn't like the idea of leaving her personal belongings with total strangers in the outer room. More than anything, I think the real reason that she didn't want to have the MRI was because she was afraid. Afraid of getting more bad news. She was told... That the only way to really find out what was going on, and the only way that she was ever going to get better, was to have this MRI, so that they could make sure that she got just the right treatment. So she had her MRI, and she did get more bad news. Not only did she have multiple lesions in both cerebral hemispheres, cerebellum, and her brainstem, there were multiple Mets up and down her spinal cord, all the way into her conus medullaris. And caught equina. As you would expect, her radiation was expanded to cover the new findings, and she was going back and forth to the radiation center on the grounds of the hospital when someone took another look at her MRI and said that it, it really wasn't a very good quality exam, and they wanted to repeat the MRI. They didn't think it would change the diagnosis, the prognosis, or the treatment options. They wanted a better quality study for the radiology file room. Now, you know, she didn't want that first MRI, so you can be sure she didn't want a second one. However, she was strongly urged to cooperate, so she acquiesced and had that second MRI. And no, it did not change her diagnosis, her treatment options, nor her prognosis. But they did get a better quality set of films for the radiology file room. And she continued to go back and forth to the radiation treatments and got to spend her 33rd wedding anniversary in the hospital. As luck would have it, she started to develop side effects from the radiation. She became very anemic and thrombocytopenic, so much so that they had to stop the radiation. Since they were stopping the radiation, they decided it was time for her to go home. So let me recap for you now. She had small cell lung cancer that metastasized despite the standard treatment. And when she was receiving the non-curative disease-modifying radiation, she developed treatment-limiting side effects that necessitated its discontinuation. So this would be the perfect time to send her home with a program of care meant for those who are terminally ill a program that helps the dying person live as fully and as comfortably as possible while supporting those who love her. The perfect time for a hospice referral, right? But instead, she was sent home with Home Health, a service for homebound patients who require some kind of skilled need where there is a potential for rehabilitation, healing, or cure. None of those three were possible in my mother's situation. On the other hand... Hospice is a philosophy or an approach to caring for the terminally ill and their loved ones. And I think it's fairly obvious at this point that home hospice would have been a more appropriate component in my mother's discharge plan. But instead, she was sent home with home health. She had a prescription for physical therapy exercises like leg lifts and bicep curls. You know, it's not like she lost the use of her extremities, from some kind of accident or injury from which she'd recover. She was losing the use of her extremities because of neurologic damage from metastatic disease. And I'm here to tell you, there is no number of leg lifts or bicep curls that will cure or diminish metastatic disease or improve the function of her arms and legs. In my blind desire for her to get better, I was trying to make her do the exercises that were prescribed for her. After all, why would her doctor prescribe something that would be ineffective? I wish I had used my common sense to recognize the reality at the time. Those exercises only served to frustrate her. She would have given anything to have been able to do them. And my thinking that they wouldn't have been prescribed if she couldn't do them only led to conflict between us our time together could have been put to better use. Not only that, as you might expect, she was quite anorexic. And she was sent home with a few cases of Ensure. I cannot tell you how many times I begged her to take a little bite of food or take a sip of Ensure, a little cheese on a cracker, a little anything, when it really wasn't as if a little bite of cheese on a cracker would do anything for her. Shoot, a sleeve of crackers, a case of insure, wouldn't have extended her life by even five minutes. Yet there I was, begging her and guilting her into eating and drinking. It just served to frustrate her. Oh, how I wish that I had known then what I know now. When I was getting used to the idea that she couldn't do her exercises and really wasn't going to eat, she developed the next big problem. It was quite embarrassing for her. It was rectal bleeding. And oh my goodness, I can't even begin to tell you how horrible that was. And we couldn't get home health to come in the middle of the night. And there just seemed to be so much blood. We did the only thing that we could think to do. And that was Go back to the hospital. And when you go back to the hospital, you know what happens. You have more tests. So while in the emergency department that night, she had more lab work, they confirmed what we already knew, that she was very anemic and very thrombocytopenic. And then we heard something quite disturbing. They didn't want to transfuse her because it would be a waste of valuable resources to do that for a dying patient. Now, as a medical person, I can understand why somebody may be thinking that, but actually verbalizing it to me about my mother and to my dad about his wife was pretty callous and hard to stomach. So if they weren't going to transfuse her, why did they draw the blood? What were they going to do? Well, let me tell you what happened next. They decided to do proctoscopy. Yes, you heard me, proctoscopy. It's hard to believe now, even all these years later. But thankfully, that was the last thing she had done in the emergency department that night. Because her bleeding did, as all bleeding eventually will, it stopped. And we were able to go back home. That's when she experienced her next big problem. And that big problem was pain. She developed severe pain. No matter how much pain medicine we gave her or how frequently we gave it, her pain continued to escalate. What I know now that I didn't know then is that Demerol, especially the oral Demerol that she was prescribed, is a horrible analgesic with a horrible side effect profile. I hate to consider the potential adverse effects that she could have developed, especially since she had nervous system metastasis. I can't believe the situation didn't get compounded by other problems. And thankfully, this drug is no longer one that is being used for pain management. Anyway, it's no wonder that her pain continued to escalate no matter what we did. So we called the Home Health Agency. It was just after 5 in the evening, Her nurse was no longer available, so we got the nurse on call. She was way across town, stuck in traffic. And she could hear my mother moaning in the background while we were on the phone. She told us there was nothing she could do for us and that we should take her back to the hospital. She said she would call an ambulance for us. That way, my mom could get the pain medicine in the ambulance and get a better pain management plan at the hospital. My mother did not want to go back to the hospital. She did not want to have an ambulance pull up in the front of her house and have the whole neighborhood see her, see her with her bald head and her body swollen from steroids as she was being hauled away. What she wanted was relief of her pain and her suffering in the privacy of her own home. In a word, what I say she wanted was dignity. And if she went back to the hospital, how many more indignities would she have to suffer through before she could get comfortable? But we're a persuasive bunch, apparently. We'd gotten her to do many things that she didn't want to do, all for the hope of getting better. Now that we knew that she wasn't going to get any better, We had to persuade her to go to the hospital so that she could feel better. Well, the ambulance arrived, and they were putting her on the stretcher, and as they were getting ready to take her out to the ambulance, it was as though the light bulb went off in all of our brains at the same time. Not only was my mother going to die, but she was going to die very soon. And when I had that realization, I started to cry. When my mother saw me crying, she reached out to me and she said, It'll be okay. At least I won't be in pain anymore. So they they loaded her up in the ambulance and we set off for the hospital again. I rode with my mother and my father followed behind in the car. While in the ambulance, they called ahead to see if they could get pain medicine for her. And I didn't realize how difficult it would be for her to get pain medicine in the ambulance. This was before the time of the electronic medical record. The emergency department didn't have her records handy on a computer. They weren't comfortable prescribing opioids over the two-way radio for someone they really knew nothing about. It took us about 25 more minutes to get to the hospital. When pulling into the ambulance bay, we were happily anticipating that she was about to get comfortable. She was about to get something for her pain. The mere thought of it brought relief. What we didn't think of was that when you go to the hospital, you have to have lab work, x-rays, get the old records, and of course look at the old MRIs before getting to manage her pain. It was as though she had to prove she was sick all over again. Finally, they decided to admit her to the oncology floor for pain control. Now, you would think that the oncology floor would be the perfect place for someone who's dying from cancer. And the staff there were lovely. They were very caring, kind people. Unfortunately, they were used to people who were still fighting the good fight. They weren't used to people who had lost the fight. I know people don't like that fighting metaphor when it comes to terminal disease, but that's what it seemed like we were doing. So the staff, as lovely as they were, seemed to have difficulty going into a room. One of the things that I've learned since then is that it's helpful to understand your own feelings about death and dying to be able to help those who are facing it. Anyway, she... Finally was started on an opioid PCA and was able to get comfortable. She was able to get comfortable just in time for my brother to arrive from out of town, and in the wee hours of the following morning she died. That was july twentieth, nineteen ninety. Every member of my mother's family was in health care. In her immediate family alone, three out of the four of us were physicians. My father, my brother, and I. You would think that if anyone is going to get the most compassionate, the most appropriate health care, it would be someone like my mom. And if this happened to her, what happens to everybody else? And frankly, I think that her situation is still fairly typical. There were so many times that a hospice referral could have been made. How about when she developed METS to her nervous system, or after one of her MRIs, or when she couldn't tolerate the non-curative therapies, or when she went to the emergency department with rectal bleeding? So many opportunities were missed and lost. How nice it would have been to have help to relieve her suffering, to have someone guide us and to help us put our time to good use. One of the things that I find most valuable with hospice services is advocacy. They advocate for the patient. You don't want to have that MRI? You don't have to have that MRI. You can't do your physical therapy? You don't have to do your physical therapy. You don't want to go to the hospital? You do not have to go to the hospital. We can make you comfortable right here in your own home. And we have someone on call 24 hours a day. Call us, night or day, if you need us. You know, they say how someone dies lives on in the memories of those left behind forever. As you can see, that's true in my case. But I know my mother would not want to be remembered only by the story that I just told. She would want to be remembered in the times that we shared throughout her whole life, on vacations, at football games, shopping, fishing, being with the family at holidays, moving into college dorms, medical school dorms, having middle-of-the-night phone call advice. She was a woman full of love, generosity, and joy. She loved her family and was a wonderful wife and mother, daughter, sister, and aunt. I'm sure she would have been a great-grandmother. And still, I think my mother would want to be remembered the way she was in that picture I keep on my desk. It represents a time she was able to put a wig on her head, rise to the occasion, and enjoy herself. Earlier I said that it was one of the few good times she did have after being diagnosed with cancer. And there could have been so many more. When I've told this story in the past, I've found that it resonates with many others. Even after all this time, we still need to do a better job in caring for those who are coming to the end of their lives. There was a hospice once that talked about how when you come into this world, you're surrounded by family and love, and there's no reason you shouldn't expect the same when you leave this world. Here's the thing. We need to inform our patients. We need to let them know that they don't have to suffer through treatments that won't give them the life they want. They can choose. We can help. When I think of people telling me how depressing hospice is, I think of the alternative. Not having hospice can be so much more depressing. Experiencing and witnessing suffering is excruciatingly difficult. I have seen great grace and experienced great reward that comes with helping people who are facing death and dying. I'm recording this podcast on my mother's birthday. I'd like to use a quote from her as our reflection. Now, I think her quote is funny and true. My mother's name is Vicki Katine. If she were alive, she would find a way to be working on this podcast, too. I hope you like the reflection. It goes like this. There are two things that people love to hear, the sound of their name and the sound of their voice. I think it can be useful to consider her words in the care of our patients so that we think twice about interrupting them and we let them tell their stories. Thanks, Mom. I still miss you. That's our podcast for today. Thank you all for listening. Please visit our website, thepalliators.com, and send us messages if you have suggestions. You'll find the reflections and the references from our podcast in the show notes on our website, too. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a good rating and review in your podcast app. I hope you'll follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time. Bye for now.